Morning, Christ Church. As we go into the sermon today, I want to begin with two points to orient ourselves. Uh, first of all, this will be a briefer sermon than usual. And uh, sometimes preachers say that kind of tongue-in-cheek and then preach longer than average. And um, this is actually the opposite. We had a parish finance meeting uh, just a few moments ago. And so the earlier service was really a condensed service. And um, I only wrote one sermon. So it's the same sermon from 9 a.m. And then second... Following that point, we are picking up exactly where we left off last week. So if you weren't here last week, maybe you're traveling for Labor Day, I want to encourage you to go back and maybe on YouTube or a podcast to listen to that sermon because it lays the foundation for what we're talking about right now. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you open to Revelation 2 and chapter 3. And um, if you've got a bulletin or a scripture note in front of you, uh, you can follow along in the scriptures there. We're going through Revelation scene by scene, and we're still in scene two. Uh, This is the message to the churches, scene two, the message to the churches. And John has received this vision from Jesus, and there's a letter, there's a message that Jesus has for these seven churches in Asia Minor. And um, our reading, if you noticed, last week our reading came from the first two letters. Uh, this week we heard from Laodicea. It's the last letter of the seven. Um, and pretty a, a harsh word that they receive as well. And you remember there's seven churches and they each receive a personal word from Jesus. And the structure that he sends them all looks the same. Jesus first identifies with every church, the good and the bad, identifies with them. Then he offers them a word of comfort or affirmation, then challenge, and then we close with a promised hope. And we're going to look at that fourth point today, the promised hope. And today's message is ultimately one of that, hope. It's hope for us who always need to hear it. So after identifying with the churches, comforting them, challenging them, Jesus offers a promised hope. And just like I did last week, I want to put a chart up showing the words he offers to each of the churches. It says, to the one who conquers, or in the NIV, to the one who is victorious, or in other translations, to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, I'll let you eat at the tree of life. You won't be hurt by second death. I'll give you a new name to the one who conquers, to the one who is victorious. You'll have authority over the nations. I'll clothe you in white. I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will let you sit with me on my throne. What is Jesus doing? He's offering hope to his church, the church that he loves, the church that he has given his life for, the the churches he has sent his spirit to. He says, hang in there in whatever situation you are in. Stay faithful all the way to the end. It will be worth it in the end. And each promise that he gives begins with this phrase, to the one who conquers to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious. This is one of John's favorite ways to describe Christians in Revelation. So as you read through Revelation, there's really two ways that John wants to describe what does it mean to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And um, the two phrases he wants to call us conquerors and witnesses. Today we're going to look at the first one, conquerors, uh, and in several weeks we'll look at this other one, witnesses, but the, I put the Greek words beneath them because they're really interesting. They're words you know. Now this first word, conquerors, it's the word Nikon, and it's where we get our English word, well, it's where the, the, the brand comes from, Nike. Just do it. Like swoosh, it's the same word right there. Um, That's where the the brand Nike comes from, this Greek word for conquering. There's actually a Greek goddess called called Nike, the goddess of conquering. And um, so this word conquerors is the first word that John wants to use to describe us. The second word, witnesses, the word he uses is martyria. 
And you probably look at that word and you can see an English word hanging out in there. Uh, The English word, of course, is martyr. And a martyr is someone who bears witness about something even to the point of their own death. And that's a theme that'll come up throughout the book of Revelation that we'll look at a little bit later as well. The original word martyria, though, simply means bearing witness to something, witnessing uh, a witness of something. So today, looking at this word conqueror, the question you might have is, a conqueror of what? Victorious against what? Overcoming what? John doesn't quite tell us, and we're going to look at uh, that question, overcoming what? To answer overcoming what, conquering what, victorious over what. Let me give you a little background on uh, Revelation that'll help make sense. When Revelation was written, the churches were facing tremendous pressure to compromise their faith. And remember, these are seven historical churches in Asia Minor, but they also, as seven churches, they represent really just any church at any age. And I said last week, if you could just take all the churches that have ever existed, all the denominations that have ever existed, and kind of put them in your hand and shake them up and roll the dice and see whichever seven roll out the furthest, any seven churches at any age at any time would face the issues that they're facing right now in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Every church will face, in every, every church... It, will always face in every age its own pressures to join the spirit of the age to accommodate the gospel. Every Christian will face that pressure to join with just the spirit of culture and just accommodate, go along with. What these churches in Revelation faced primarily was a spirit of idolatry, worshiping other gods, and then worshiping, bowing down to the Roman Empire. These all actually go together. So let me kind of paint the picture. Imagine yourself going back in time 2,000 years ago and you're walking through the streets of ancient Laodicea. As you're walking along the streets, the roads that aren't paved as closely together, the marketplace that is jam-packed a lot tighter. Um, you make your way into the marketplace. This is, the marketplace is kind of like the internet of the day. If you want to like, go and get anything, you don't Google Amazon or get information. Like You just go to the marketplace. That's where you get your news, your information. That's where you order your, your bread for the day. That's where you find out what's been going on in the city. So you go to the marketplace. You're hanging out there, the buzz of the crowd, and looming over on the streets over behind the marketplaces on both sides are different temples to different gods. And coming out of these different temples to different gods, you can smell the aroma of sacrifices that have happened. This is original Texas brisket took place in the temples uh, back in the day. It's where the burnt ends came from. That's a terrible joke. (laughs) It's not actually a joke. It's why you should say to your notes when you're preaching. Paul actually addresses this. If you go check out 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses, can you eat food that's been sacrificed in these temples? It's actually a really live question that Christians are wrestling with. So you've got these temples dominating the landscape of the city. What you might not have heard before, though, is the temples aren't just gods like the goddess of Nike or Artemis. Maybe you've heard the the name of the goddess Artemis in Ephesus. There's actually temples to Rome. Kind of the whole city of Rome receives a temple. There's actually a temple to the emperor, Caesar, to Domitian is the current Caesar, and there are temples where you could go and make sacrifices to the empire. You can make sacrifices on behalf of the emperor himself, the son of a god, as he was called. And Christians are living in this social space at this time. There's enormous pressure on the Christians to politically identify with Rome, 
It's enormous pressure to take part in these temple sacrifices, enormous pressure to socially be in this marketplace and, uh, and try to filter out what am I allowed to engage in, what do I not engage in. There's a cost to following Jesus. It would actually would cost you political power. It would cost you the ability to, to eat in certain people's homes. It would, there would be an economic cost. The guilds were all associated with the temples, and you might not be able to participate uh, in your marketplace venture because uh, you, you have a Christian conviction against this. In other words, in following Jesus under the shadow of Rome would cost the Christians social status, economic wealth, political power. Yet notice what John does not say. He doesn't say, therefore, get out of your city and come join me on the island of Patmos. He doesn't say, come out of your society. Rather, he says, where you are, overcome. Be victorious. Conquer where you are in the midst of society. Now, you think about this message, and you could ask, does following Jesus today make demands on how we participate in the economy political system? Does it make, following Jesus, does it, it make, does Jesus make social demands on us? And I would answer absolutely yes. Our temples just aren't that visible anymore, but we still have temples. I had two experiences uh, that I want to share with you, one from this last week and another from a year ago. This past week, I had the privilege of going to um, two sporting events on UT's campus. And uh, the first, last Wednesday, I went to the number one ranked women's volleyball team. Our UT uh, women's team is the number one ranked team in the nation. I saw them absolutely crush another team. It was uh, so much fun to watch, unless you were the other team. Um, (laughs) If you get the chance to go, my, I, I took my daughter and my, my dad, and we parked far away and just walked across beautiful campus, of course, walking across UT with all the buildings and, and everything. We walked across the campus and then made our way to the gymnasium where it was loud and packed and so much fun. That was, um, that was the first sporting event. The second sporting event is I was at the UT Alabama game yesterday, and um, hook them, right? A couple, there we go. No, you, I can't believe that. Um, So my voice might be on the edge of cracking. I literally at one point had tears in my eyes. I was so excited uh, for the game, which shows you also where my allegiances are shifting now in these days. But I noticed this across where we parked. We had to to park on 15th Street and walk pretty far. Again, going through all the different, just the campus, which is really beautiful. And I, I was just kind of reminded of this as I was reflecting, is that our universities, our college system, which I love for so many reasons, um, there is a temple associated with it. Not the university itself, but there's an idea in America that you must go to a university in order to be successful, in order to live a successful and flourishing life. And again, nothing wrong with going to universities, nothing wrong with going to college, but there is an American myth that in order to be a, uh, a person who's established, a person who is beloved, a person who's a success in America, you must enter here no matter what it costs you. No matter what it costs you financially, no matter what it costs you socially, you must enter this system. And I would say, again, uh, well, let me just pause there. That was my first experience. Second experience was a year ago, and it took place uh, under the 7th Street and I-35 Bridge, just a few blocks this way. It's a very jarring experience I'm about to share. It took place at the place where this church worships once a month with Church Under the Bridge and Mission Possible, work, worshiping alongside our chronically homeless neighbors. And I was there because uh, it was one of the first clearings of an encampment in our city. About 
18, or about four months before that, really, so about 16 months ago, our city voted, as many of you know, to, out, to ban uh, camping on the streets, reversing a policy that had started earlier. And I want to be very clear right now, I'm not actually going to advocate either way for either policy. So you can just kind of put your defenses down. I'm not making a political statement. I want to share an illustration. I was there because this encampment of about 30 or 40 people um, is within our church walking distance. You know, that word parish is a geographical word. It's our parish. So I, as a representative of the church, wore my collar and went to watch and to bear witness to this event. And as I did, I noticed 30 or 40 individuals who chronically homeless living on the streets with uh, tents or mattress and whatever other goods they might have, a change of clothes, bicycles, um, some food items. And besides me, I, I don't think there were many other Christians there, police officers, a sanitation department comes in with a giant dump truck and a crane, and the crane reaches down on each, where each person has been camping and puts a claw around all the possessions, picks it up, and drops it into a giant dump truck. The image could not be more clear on uh, where we think this material belongs. And as I turned my eyes and looked west, not even one block, but one street, there's a high-rise building that's just now being constructed there, going up 10 or 12 stories, condos selling in the hundreds of thousands, and a sign so big in uh, in big letters at the very bottom saying this, anything you can imagine is possible. And I thought, could there be a greater disconnect between poverty and wealth on e just literally across the street from one another? We have temples. They're just not visible. We have temples in America calling us to worship. They're just not as visible as the ones that they faced in Laodicea. Jesus calls us not to lose hope, to faithfully follow him and so to conquer. And think about that word conquer again. For the first 12 chapters, if you read through uh, Revelation, the first 12 chapters of Revelation, the verb to conquer never has an object. You know, when you have a verb, you often have an object that goes with it. The verb to conquer never has an object for the first 12 chapters. And you're wondering, who do we conquer? Who do we overcome? Who are we victorious against? It's not until chapter 12 and 13 that finally our author, John, gives us the answer to that. We learn in chapter 12 and then again in chapter 13, we are called to conquer this dragon, this ancient enemy, this serpent, ultimately Satan. We learn he is behind the spiritual force behind all temples, behind all false idolatries that we are called to resist, behind every temple, behind every myth of what happiness is and what the good life is, apart from God, there is satanic influence. This force exerts power and influence everywhere, and Revelation says this is what conquering is all about. It's about resisting the spiritual and demonic influence of our age and following the slain lamb which is who we will talk about next week. And the question John is putting before his churches is, will you be faithful to Jesus? You are in a very difficult situation. Will you be faithful to Jesus? Will you allow the Spirit to transform you, to become like Jesus and live with him in light of all the difficulties you face? You can kind of, you remember Peter's question to Jesus where Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you and what's in it for us? And Jesus promises 
to Peter. And it's the same answer that he gives to these churches, that whoever has left family or work or their own sense of identity for my sake will certainly not lose their reward. Instead, they will be rewarded. They will eat at the tree of life. They will be blessed, clothed in white, given a new name. They will be honored. They will sit on a throne with me. For now, we know who we are called to conquer. What does conquering look like exactly? That's where we're going to turn next week. As we turn, and I'll just give you a foretaste, we're going to turn to the heavenly throne room. And in the throne room, worship around God, we're going to see a picture of the slain lamb and what conquering truly looks like. Before then, I want to give you um, one more picture maybe of, of conquering right now, though. If you are new to the Anglican church, uh, you might not have had an opportunity yet to purchase or get a Book of Common Prayer, but let me encourage you, when the service is over, go out to eat, go get lunch, and then go home and get on Amazon and order yourself a Book of Common Prayer. One of the things in there, but by the way, the Book of Common Prayer, all of our prayers, all of our liturgy, what we do up here, all comes out of it, and you can pray along with it. But there's a section in there uh, that's a calendar for the, the, the special days, the feast days of the saints. And what that is, there are feast days where you just remember there's people in our church history who have lived faithfully before us. They've overcome, they've conquered. They haven't lived perfectly, but they've lived faithfully in the middle of this world against all the pressures of the world that faces. They have overcome. They followed the Lamb. And there is one I was reminded of this past week. One of my favorite saints days, a lesser known uh, saint, is Saint Constance and her companions. Saint Constance, she is um, from the 1870s, and I think we have a, um, an icon of her up here that was written not too long ago. Constance is one of the nuns there in the front. She is a head of an Anglican, um, of a group of sisters, this Anglican convent. And while she's on a spiritual retreat, she's in Memphis, uh, and the convent is in Memphis. While she's on a spiritual retreat up to New York, word gets to her that there's been an epidemic of yellow fever back in Memphis. This is in 1878. And as soon as word reached her up in New York at her spiritual retreat, one biography says when she heard the news, without an hour's delay, she made preparations. She bid farewell to her companions, no more again to see their faces in this world, and took her way back to the scene of desolation and death. Knowing what stood before her, Constance walked back into suffering, not away from it. She went back and she acted as a nurse and a caregiver, opening her home with the other nuns, caring physically for people. She ultimately would contract the fever herself and die, though not after caring for so many others. And to read her story in light of the last two years, I feel sheepish in my own life of how I've lived. I need her correctiveness of what it means to overcome in the face of sickness. You know, it's easy to hear a story like this also and to romanticize the work that, oh, of course, she went in and lived this beautifully glamorous life and in the face of suffering, and Jesus honored her. I read one of her letters this week, and um, let me just share with you, here's what daily conquering sounds like. Not quite as glamorous as we might often paint the picture. Conquering for Constance meant normal, daily, faithfully loving Jesus, the people he put in front of her work. She writes a letter about how she had taken pains to clean up her house, had tidied it up everywhere, had sprayed a, a beautiful smelling disinfectant all throughout the house to clean it from those who had been suffering in the home. And as she tidies it all up, and I can imagine her even putting down like a vase of flowers there in the middle of the home, not too long after that, 
a city health inspector comes by and without really looking through the home, takes a very powerful cleaning agent that smells horrible and just starts splashing it all over the house. And this infuriates Constance. And she writes about the stench and how it ruins the carpets and makes everything not look nice. Frustrating her, romance meets reality. She continues to faithfully follow Jesus. What is conquering? It's remaining faithful in everyday obedience. It's defining reality by God's values, not the values of the world, and then trying to faithfully live by the power of his spirit those values out. Do you feel far from God right now? You feel distant from God. Conquering for you might mean this, that believe, even in the midst of feeling so distant, believe that he truly loves you. Believe that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you, that he has great plans for your life, even as you feel distant from him. Conquering for you would mean putting one foot in front of the next and continuing to walk faithfully towards him. Maybe you feel more secure and steady. You know, sometimes we can get in this kind of rut of, I know what it is to live the Christian life. I've kind of got it figured out, and I'm just going to keep on going. Conquering for you might mean continuing to open your heart. You're saying, Jesus, come in and examine me, and if I have been worshiping at any temple, correct me, Lord. I want to know you more. Conquering is living a daily and faithful life to King Jesus wherever he has you, recognizing in every situation he is true king, true power of this world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.